Today we are continuing our Lenten worship series, which is entitled 316. If you were with us last week, you know it's inspired by a book by Max Lucado that looks at each phrase of John 316. This is one of the best known and beloved verses of the Bible. And in his introduction, Lucado wrote, if you know nothing about the Bible, start here. If you know everything in the Bible, return here. And I'm encouraging you to engrave this verse on your mind, your heart, and your soul throughout the season and reflect upon its meaning. It's going to be appearing on our screens, and as it does, I would invite you to recite it with me. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Last week, we looked at John 3 as the context for the verse and Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus at night. Today, we're beginning to look at each phrase of the Scripture, and this morning, beginning with, For God so loved the world. Those first two words, for God. By definition, theology begins and ends with God. The Bible begins with Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. God pre-existed creation. If you really want to blow your mind, consider that God pre-existed even the creation of time. When Moses asked God who God was, God said, I am who I am. The God of the past, the God of the present, the God of the future. And Genesis reveals how God spoke creation into being. And the world about us witnesses to God's handiwork. The psalmist wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. In Psalm 8, David was reflecting on the place of humanity within the creation of the world, and said, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have created, what are human beings that you're mindful of him? And yet you've made us little lower than the angels, and crowned us with glory and with honor. We and the world are fearfully and wonderfully made, and from a cellular to a galactic grandeur, God's fingerprints are all over the cosmos. Mario Livio wrote a book some years ago with the title, Is God a Mathematician? Based on the scores I got in high school, I'm really hoping not. But he asked an intriguing question in the book. He said, was mathematics invented or discovered? And he makes the case that mathematics is a part of the divine language God speaks that binds creation together. And he talks about the underlying order of algebra, of geometry, of calculus, and of trigonometry that you see God's handiwork all around us. And we intuitively understand it. Even if someone had never read the Bible, been to church, even heard the name of Jesus Christ, we were created in the image of God. And on the far side of the fall, there's still something within us that resonates with creation and recognizes there is a creator, something greater than ourselves. Paul wrote about this in his letter to the Romans, and he said, For since the creation of the world, 
God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made so that we are without excuse. But then God took it another step further because we have a self-revealing Lord who wants to be in relationship with his people. And so we read Hebrew scripture as a series of covenants or relationships that God makes with the patriarchs and matriarchs of our faith. And it culminates by sending his son into the world to form a new covenant, a new relationship, a new testament. And we can understand all of this. And we can know all of this in our heads, but it also has to be a part of our heart. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish theologian, said, facts can only take you so far down the pathway because there is a gap in the road. And the only way to get from one side to the other is to take a leap of faith, to believe it not only with your head, but to trust it with your heart and your soul and place your entire weight, cast your entire being into God's hands. For God so loved So suppose people, and most people do, would at least admit there is some sort of God, but God is what? Fill in the blank. We have all these different descriptors for God that attempt to approximate God's nature and God's character. Some years ago, I was sitting in a church worship service, and the organist began the prelude, and I glanced at the bulletin. The title of it was, The Lord God Ineffable. I don't know about you, ineffable is not a part of my daily vocabulary. And I actually had to go look it up after the service was over. Ineffable means indescribable, beyond words, incomprehensible. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If God is God, as Reverend Sarah was talking about, you can't measure God. You can't put God into a box and define the Lord God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so what we do is that we resort to a language of poetry, of similes and of metaphors. We say God is like, and each image gives us a glimpse into who God is in our lives, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer, Savior, Master, and Lord, Rock, Fortress, and Deliverer. The fairest of 10,000, the bright and morning star, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. God is all of these things and so much more. Perhaps the most concise and incisive description of God comes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. Three syllables. God is love. And that says everything... And yet that simple sentence is also ultimately complex. And our misunderstanding of John's words come not from his statement, but from our understanding of love. Because you can make a strong case that in the English language, the word love is like a $1 bill that's been in circulation too long. We've worn it out. It's lost its meaning. I can stand here today and tell you I love my wife. I love our Yorkshire Terrier, Sam. I love a Chick-fil-A milkshake if you're ordering me one large chocolate with whipped cream and a cherry. And all those statements are true, but that word love explores and explains and describes three totally different sentiments. 
C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, The Problem of Pain, wrote about our misunderstanding of the word love. And if you've never read C.S. Lewis, I'm not saying you've got to in order to get into heaven, but it probably won't hurt. And he talks about how oftentimes we mistake love for kindness in our relationships with others, but also in God's relationship with us. And that God just desires us to be happy. Not happy in any particular way, just happy. And then he goes on to say, and this one stings a little bit, most of us do not want a father in heaven. We want a grandfather in heaven. Some divine, somewhat senile benevolence that doesn't really care what we do, that he just wants us to be happy and that a good time is had by all. I would say, as just a little bit of a, a side trip, that I oftentimes see parents make the same mistake of confusing love and happiness as they raise their children. Now, here clearly, for every parent and every grandparent here who is a loving, kind person, you want your children to be happy. But that's not the aim of Christian parenthood. The aim of parenthood is to raise up a child in the way they should go, to teach them the things of faith, to help set them on a pathway where they can become the people God created them to be, recognizing that life is equal parts nurture, nature, and choice. And ultimately, that child will grow up and make their own decisions. But if you're going to be a really good parent, sometimes your goal is to make your child very unhappy, to make sure they suffer the consequences of their actions, that when they go down a wrong pathway or they're disobedient, that they understand that there are certain things that follow. And ultimately, we hope that happiness is a byproduct of their life, but that's not the ultimate goal. God doesn't love us with some sentimental, sappy emotion that just hopes that we're happy. It is an all-consuming, all-demanding love that wants the best for us. It's a costly love that God sent his son and then in turn asks us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nothing less is acceptable. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10 verse 15 describes this all-consuming love. It, in English says, the Lord chose your ancestors as objects of his love. But underlying the Hebrew verb is this sense of a tethered love, a love that is attached to something or to someone. Have you ever seen a child leash? Do you know what I'm talking about? You've seen them. They have a harness that attaches around a toddler's torso, and then it has a strap in the back. Here, clearly, no judgment. We never actually owned one as parents, but there were a number of times I could have seen how it would come in extremely handy. Lakato uses that image, and he says when you pull on the strap, it, you pull on it for two functions, yanking and claiming. You yank on the strap to keep the child in line and to keep them from harm, but by yanking, you're also claiming them as your own. And in essence, you're saying, yes, he may be as wild as a banshee, but he's mine. 
God's love is a tethering love. God yanks us and God claims us. God wants us on the right path because he knows that's the ultimate fulfillment we will find in our lives to be the people God meant us to be. But in the yanking, God claims us as God's own. For God so loved the world. The world is a big place. And when we talk about the world... We're talking about ourselves, we're talking about our family, we're talking about our neighbors, our fellow students, our co-workers, other persons in our nation and around the world. And if we're real honest, I'll say this for myself, I won't say it for you, I would like to subdivide the world into people God loves and God doesn't. But I don't get to make that choice. Because if I'm going to say God so loved the world, I cannot claim that for myself without claiming it for others. And loving God and loving neighbor are inseparably intertwined in the Christian gospel. And this is something you've heard time and time again, but I want you to hear it to heart this day. The Lord God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, loves you and loves me. Another Christian author said if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. God so loved the world, he sent his son for you, for each of us. And that is a love, love beyond all description and all imagination. A fellow pastor tells about taking his daughter to Lake Hartwell for the first time. And they were out on the water and her eyes got big and she said, Daddy, this lake is really, really big. And the father wisely responded, and sweetheart, that's just the top of it. We haven't begun to dabble our toes and to walk the shores of God's oceanic love. There are depths of mercy and of grace we cannot even begin to fathom and to understand, for God so loved the world. And we need to hear that because there are times we don't feel terribly lovable. Can you imagine if even those who love you best knew everything in your life? All the thoughts that go through your head? All the things you didn't say but you wanted to? All the secrets of your past life? God knows those things. And God loves us because of who we are. And sometimes despite who we are, God loves us. And we need to remember a few weeks ago, Jeff Rogers was preaching, and he mentioned a Pixar movie, so I challenge accepted. I have a Pixar illustration this morning as well. It comes from Toy Story 2. You'll recall that one of the main characters is Woody the Cowboy, who is a sheriff. And the plot of the movie is that Woody is beginning to doubt that his little boy Andy loves him because he inadvertently, mistakenly, was placed in a box for a yard sale. And an unscrupulous toy collector buys Woody because he is the missing part of a priceless toy collection. And there comes a penultimate moment in the movie when Woody's got to decide, will he be a part of a museum piece or a little boy's tattered toy and the turning point comes when he rubs the new paint off of his boot and he sees Andy's name 
printed on his soul. John 3.16 is God's love letter to the world. It's God's love letter to you and to me. And God's name is written upon our souls. That's who we are. That's whose we are. Lakato wrote, God loves you with an unearthly love. You can't win it by being winsome. You can't lose it by being a loser. But you can be blind enough to resist it. Hear the good news today. God loves you. For God so loved the world. Let us pray. Gracious and almighty God, we cannot begin to span the height and width and depth of your love and grace in our lives. But even at this moment, help us to know that we are special in your sight, that we are priceless, that your love and grace and mercy are constantly poured to the overflowing into the containers of our lives. And allow us to respond to that love by loving you in turn. In the name of Jesus the Christ, we make our prayer. Amen.